And it's, here's one bit of speculation I'll offer you. I, I think there's some truth for it in the earlier work on expert political judgment. And that is, uh, the more open you are to plausible counterfactuals, the more open you are to po possible ways in which the future could unfold. Well, in the extreme, that has to be true, because the alternative in the extreme would be the future is predestined and nothing we can do to change it. We're wasting our time sitting here. If you had infinite amount of information, right. there's nothing left to chance. Yeah. Probability has no meaning if everything is deterministic. Yeah. And if it is, it has to be equally symmetric going backward in time and forward. So you can't have one of those without the other. I think somebody asked a question this morning about whether something was merely a justification or not. I mean, my question directed to Bob, and I'm not sure. Um, but uh, you could argue that counterfactual, the reason a conservative believes that the Soviet Union would still exist if, if Reagan had not been president is because it happens to justify an ideological worldview they have. Or you could argue it's part of the mechanism that drives the person to hold those views. So which came, so the, and then this, this slide here, the chicken or the egg, problem, which came first, um, slide 73, uh, people invent counterfactuals to justify policy positions they want, they need to justify, uh, so they, they're basically you know, secondary, epiphenomenal, smoke-to-fire sorts of things, or counterfactuals are actually driving people toward particular worldviews. Philip, I, I have a question, you know, using counterfactuals to understand history um, and what happened in the past, there, is, there are methodologies to do that. So they're not perfect, but, um, and that's part of what Fogel did. That's part of what we were doing with analytic narratives when we were together as fellows at the center. So that you could figure out if another path was plausible or had been taken, what the sort of testable implications of that would be. And you can, anyway, you can figure out ways to differentiate between the causes of various kinds of paths from history. Is that kind of methodology at all transportable into thinking about predictive worlds? Well, every time you run a multiple regression equation to predict uh, who, who, which, which candidate you're going to prefer in an election, that multiple regression equation has counterfactual entailments, right? It implies that if your income had been uh, $50,000 a year lower, you'd be more likely to vote Democrat by 0.2. Or, um, it, 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 it's, it's, woven, it's woven into the fabric of statistical models of history. But the, but the really interesting issues with counterfactuals are what would be the consequences of different paths, right? I think so. Uh, so here, here's one of the, I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, so, so I, I'm, one, one thing I'm very concerned about, the reason I warned you about the pessimism of this section is, is, is this one here about the what-if echo chambers. Um, it, it, it's the, the ease with which people invent, invent counterfactuals. Um, to, to, to support their position vis-a-vis -vis the invasion of Iraq. And you, 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 can, you can look at it for yourself. It's too depressing for me to look at, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. Uh, and, it, it, and people actually do say these things. So it's just, I'm not, not, they're not, not being made up. Um, I, I want to turn uh, to uh, a couple of things a little further on. Uh, and one of them is the flight of Air, Air France Flight 447. Um, and let's see, the, the, the tragedy of Air France Flight 
447. I, I, I really should let, let Dean lead this conversation. Uh, uh, I, I don't know anything about flying airplanes, but there's the, a the whole confluence of factors responsible for the disaster of that flight. Uh, they're listed here. The lead pilot slept one night the hour before, inadequate cockpit communication uh, until too late, severe thunderstorms over the equator, inattentive pilots listening to operas, reading magazines, um, there was frozen air pressure probes and false panel readings, and there was an aerodynamics stall that was uncorrected for several minutes. Um, and you combine all of those things, and you get the death of, I don't know, 250 plus people in, in the mid-Atlantic. Um, now, there are various ways of thinking about this. And it, but the, the, the bottom line is, and it comes back to our discussion about stories and prediction, the, the NTSB, which does these very careful analytical postmortems on, on accidents, uh, can do an exquisitely good job of explaining why these crashes occur. Uh, but it, of course, can't even come remotely close to predicting them. It's just, there's a, just a radical disjuncture between what's possible from an explanatory point of view and what's possible from a predictive point of view. So that's, um, I think it's interesting from that from that perspective. Um, Wait a minute. They, they can, for example, say that in this model airplane, the door I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Bob, a little louder, sorry. I'm sorry. A little louder. They can find things like, in this model airplane, the door isn't constructed properly, and so that should be fixed. And implicit in that is a prediction that if the door is fixed, they'll have fewer crashes than that model of airplane. And their track record, by my understanding, is really quite good. They have reduced all kinds of uh, flaws in airplanes. In this case, they were replacing the pitot tubes uh, because they were known to freeze over. They just hadn't got around to replacing the pitot tubes on this particular aircraft. So that is kind of an implicit prediction that if you keep it in the pitot yeah. tubes, you'll do better. Yeah. So there's a very well-developed body of uh, applied physics relevant to aviation. Uh, it's full of um, nomological propositions that lead to if-then uh, predictions that can be tested in laboratory or control settings, and they're, and they're going to prove to be very accurate uh, in simulations and so forth. All, the, all that is true. But when you take all those, that, that, so that's a well-defined body of science, but when you mix that into the messy real world with messy human beings running the airplane, um, the, the potential for predicting how those systems are going to work out uh, it, it, Finish the sentence. Pardon me? Finish the sentence. Yeah. Well, it, 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 uh, predicting specific accidents just isn't possible. Yeah, but the, this gets the, back to the question we uh, discussed earlier about the relationship between prediction and decision and, and, and quality of outcome. Yeah. yeah. So they can't predict that the next airplane crash will take place in three years or two days. I grant you that. But they can predict that if you keep an eye on the pitot tubes, you'll have fewer accidents. And that's what we want to know. Yeah. So they do, by doing analysis of the causation, do provide guidance for decisions yeah, that's, that's useful. Yeah, so I think that's very much in the spirit of what I'm proposing with question clustering and decomposition of big questions into smaller resolvable indicators. I, I, I think that the that what we call P tube indicator. Um, that, that's, that's that's a good example. Okay. Um, uh, just as uh, food riots in a southern Chinese city might be a good example. Uh, uh, future Chinese domestic instability or 
um, and reduced the traffic uh, uh, into North Korea to find China squeezing North Korea. Uh, there are other factors in the crash which are more embarrassing to deal with. But I mean, you know, there, there, there are and there are cultural factors involved in that crash, not uh, and, and actually interface design factors, mm -hmm. uh, which is that the um, you have two joysticks on, on the Airbus, yeah. And if they're pushed, first of all, when the autopilot quits, the, the plane en enters what's known as alternate mode, where it doesn't respond to inputs in the same way as it does normally, because the flight computer is effectively bypassed. Secondly, if you push the control uh, sticks uh, in opposite directions, the inputs cancel each other out, which was what really led to the problem. I mean, it was interface design to a great extent, so that's, that's a much more difficult thing to fix. So there's probably a te tendency here where uh, people attribute the causes of the problem to those elements which are easiest to uh, rectify. Disproportionate. Is it fair? Oh, it's, hard to, it's hard to change culture, it's you know, relatively hard to redesign the cockpit of an airbus completely, whereas it's easy to fix PTA tubes. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's dream though to eliminate the academic discussion of the human factors there by making one statement which is undeniable. As rare as all these accidents are, and they're incredibly rare in among them, the ones that happen at night in bad weather are so overwhelmingly more common than good weather at daytime that any rational person, that, while they're all small, any rational person looking at those two pieces of data would say, I will never fly in, in meteorological conditions that aren't the FR or at night. But I don't think anybody in this room would agree to that. But instead, Instead of arguing whether all of those servo connections and since both pitot tubes were feeding different systems in the computer, they lost 34,000 feet before they knew they had a problem because everything was working just fine. If you clog up your pitot tubes, you don't get ram air, so you don't have a loss. You don't get change in altitude because you can't. So you could decide that there are all sorts of problems, but they'd have none of those problems if they weren't flying a freaking thunderstorm at 45,000 feet mm -hmm. at night. Yeah. So you could say, lump all of these things together, whether they're human factors or everything else, how many times is a multi-engine aircraft involved in an accident in good weather, and it's virtually never, which is to say no matter how small that other number is, it's virtually all the crashes. The only ones that happened at daylight are ones because you had a microburst, because there was a thunderstorm either 10 miles ahead of you or 10 miles behind you, like the one in Texas, the one in San So the profile of not, not, not avoiding the storm in the, it's, it's in the equator, isn't it? You've got a particular zone. Or, or anywhere where you're near a thunderstorm, your probability, while it's still low, is nearly infinitely higher than if you're not. So once you know, okay, so looking at the accident in retrospect, you, you know the particular configuration of antecedents that experts say contributed directly or indirectly to the accident. Um, which of those antecedents, of that set of of that set of interlocking antecedents, you could say, ah, a, a subset make me sufficiently worried that I'm going to change my policy <coughs> flying. So you, you're not going to go and get on a commercial airliner when, when it's a night flight and, and the weather is problematic. That kind. Of Personally, and, and maybe, maybe not Air France because what? Personally, I'll fly myself when I know those conditions.
conditions are around because I will steer 100 miles or more or south of that. I, I will do what I think is reasonable knowing that if you stay out of really bad weather, you have almost no risk. Mm -hmm. The airlines, due to lots of things, including the arrogance of most of these pilots, and frankly, pilots are not particularly good at aerodynamics, physics, meteorology, or anything else. They're a bus driver, a big salary. And I don't want to be sitting in the back of the room with a pit with a guy like that up front when maybe he hasn't slept. Maybe he has a lot of problems. That's why I fly myself. <laughs> and you're wrong, too. Because individual flyers are many what? times more dangerous than commercial passengers. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. That's a big who turns out to typically be the doctor who and all of those things getting all this thing average thing like you do, which is that I mean and just like drivers feel they're they're safer than two thirds of drivers feel they're safer than average drivers. <laughs> and probably ninety percent of individual uh, 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 general aviation flyers think that they're better than average. That I think is true. I think they're all there. Therefore you're wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> feeling that you're safer flying yourself. So I'm confused about something. He's just worried about you. No, but I, would, I guess I would differ because I was making a point about under what conditions I would fly. And that guy, even though he's got a big 300,000 pound airplane with all these engines and a crew of three, he'll fly within 20 miles, which is what they tell him they got to stay of a thunderstorm, and I will not. And by the way, the doctors will think I can keep my wing out of the edge of it. So I, I think, I think. You have to parse it down to not whether you think you have good skill or not, but do you have a set of metrics that you use? And all I was saying was, if you, you unlike the, the uh, somewhat arbitrary ones, you could you could take this large amount of data, look at every single accident you've seen, and which ones are related to That's pretty, pretty good. weather, and which ones aren't, and then say, why do we still have a set of rules like this? Right. Because I see some of the philosophical conundrums with the counterfactuals. I see some of the philosophical conundrums with counterfactuals. What I don't see is what's the consequence of this discussion to your alcohol. You use super forecasting, and you do super forecasting. What's the consequences of this debate for? Counterfactual discussion as um, a sobering reminder of uh, how easy it is to slip into very theory-driven thinking about history uh, that construction your, your view of what did happen, what could have happened, and also structure your view of what could happen. Um, so I think it's I think it's flowing from the same underlying the same underlying mental model I think is is generating the counterfactuals and so, the condition so forecast. Do what well, I guess the question is, counterfactual reasoning left to its own device does tend to be pretty heavily ideological. Uh, and isn't uh, the basic idea of cause and effect based on counterfactual reasoning? Did anything cause anything in history? That's 
sort of a counteraction? It, it, it is. Um, but you, you know, the, the disciplines that have been able to make rapid progress in understanding cause and effect are the disciplines that understand why P-tubes are crucial for um, maintaining an aircraft. Uh, they're not, but not, not, not for understanding why World War I occurred uh, right after the assassination of the Archduke or why this guy Adolf Hitler happened to be associated with a concatenation of events in mid-20th century. So it's, I guess it's a sobering lesson. So you would conclude to do what differently too? Well, here's one of the things we did back in 2005. Uh, it was an effort to, um, to check hindsight bias. So hindsight bias is uh, the tendency for people to have difficulty recalling what their prior predictions were. So we had some forecasters, we set aside some forecasters whose task was uh, to remember uh, without any counterfactual prompting, and another group of forecasters who were asked to think about alternative ways in which outcomes could have occurred. Right. So that counterfactual manipulation made them more aware of their past predictions. It debiased them. Um, now, insofar as you believe, that turns out that being susceptible to hindsight bias in that study was also associated with being more of a hedgehog and more biased. So it all ties in in that fashion. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, it is a form of, I hate to use this expression from the 1960s, consciousness raising. Um, it, it's a way of sensitizing us to some mental habits we all have. We, and we're doing it frequently and we're not aware of it uh, and it locks us into particular views of the future. Um, and because you can't have these, you, 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 you know, in aviation you can take the various cause and effect components from applied physics and you can say, look, this will lead to this, this will lead to that. Um, but when you get to the level of the full system with human beings operating in a complicated environment and re re reconstructing the accident, your ability to explain, which is great, which is formidable, um, confers no, 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 no meaningful capacity to predict. Uh, that particular real-world event. Uh, it does, however, as Bob is pointing out, allow you to predict that if certain causal factors take on certain values, the risk of those of, of particular effects rises. Now, whether those effects will lead to an accident or not is another matter. But you can. But that's that's just what happens when you can do experiments. Uh, and it, it's really obvious you can't do experiments with history. We don't have time machines, and we. No, um, but uh, it, um, I think it's salutary to think about. So I think I have a question. Uh, going back to, uh, I, I think the Iraq one is much more complicated than the plane one because of the outcome. Uh, and the Iraq one is still unknown. Like, what would have happened if Iraq was not attacked? Uh, what is the framework would you do to assess the people who forecast, I could say, we're having this now, and we're asking a bunch of super forecasters to come in and say what would have happened if the U.S. did not invade Iraq. How would you assess their the outcome? Okay, that, that's one of the things I did want. Okay, so imagine that you've got you've got super forecasters who um, make a prediction. Let's, let's just take it away from Iraq for a second. Uh, who? Um, oh no, let's let's t well, hey, you, imagine you had super forecasters just prior to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, making predictions about what would happen if the U.S. invaded, and others making predictions about what would happen if the U.S. did not invade. 
Now, then, then you have a group of, four, of the, the forecasters who are predicting on branch A, um, a subset of them correctly anticipate the deep sectarian conflicts that are going to follow. Um, with you know, impressive accuracy, a subset of them do not. Uh, would you take the subset that are more accurate on the observed branch of history and say that they were likely to be more accurate in the predictions on the counterfactual branch, even though you can't observe the counterfactual branch? I don't know. What would you do? Well, I don't think it's meaningless. <laughs> um, what would well, you do? What's that? I mean, you could run the experiment. If, if you did ask people when the United States would invade Iraq, you could. And those that got that right, if you, and those that got that wrong, could both be asked if they did invade Iraq, would there be major sectarian conflict? And then see whether the people that made the prediction about the United States were more accurate about the prediction about Iraq in the future. If you're saying to do that now and get the answer, isn't that the whole point that he's saying? Because you have that bias. You can't do it now, but you'd have yeah, a preceding and another yeah, that's event. Part of that. mm -hmm. It's antecedent. That's before. And I would guess that if the, in this case, the two predictions are one is about what the United States is going to do, and the other is about what the Iraqis, how they're going to respond, if those are pretty much based on different kinds of information, different kinds of expertise, there wouldn't be a lot of correlation. The ones that got the merit were wrong might be just as good about getting Iraq right. But if they were very similar, like if they're both about Iraq politics, then you expect the same people that got one right to get the other right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. I, I, I don't think this will help, but there is a word that hasn't come up and that I sort of feel is missing, and the word is propensity. Mm -hmm. So we're talking of systems, and systems have propensities to do things. I mean, this is something that we, we realize. It's, it's a broader notion, in a way, than cause and effect. It's less sort of discreet, but you can recognize that changing, you know, improving the design of a plane will reduce the propensity. We're talking about propensity this morning, you know, with in, intent. An intent is a propensity. A strength measure, or the explosiveness of a situation, or the fragility of a, of a system, all those are very well described in terms of propensities, and counterfactuals are about propensities. Mm -hmm. So there is really, a, I mean, I, I have always thought that there is something missing that we ought to be developing our thinking about propensity because this is, you know, the concept is very intuitive. Everything that I've said here, everybody agrees with. Whereas probability is not so intuitive. Whereas probability is much harder. But to discuss propensities is, is a lot easier. And so I'm, I'm just asking, and maybe that's something that, that's very premature, but I have the feeling that, that if we tried another angle to think about causal system rather than only probability and causal systems, that, that there is that intermediate notion that could be very useful. Just a thought. Um, so you can run experiments in which you describe to people, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis resolved on October 29, 1962. 
Uh, and you can ask people, um, at what point did, what, did it become inevitable that the crisis would resolve peacefully? And you can, you could plot a propensity or a probability function uh, showing how the inevitability of peace gradually rose until it became a done deal. It was going to be resolved peacefully. Or you could ask them the mirror image question, at what point did alternatives to the Cuban, uh, alternative more violent endings of the Cuban Missile Crisis become impossible? Um, now those should be mirror images of each other. Um, and they are roughly mirror images of each other. Uh, not perfect, but, but it, it, um, and you can also ask people, when they do these exercises, you can, you can manipulate whether or not some of them are asked to think about alternative ways the Cuban Missile Crisis could have resolved violently. So you could, have, you could describe to them ways in which um, uh, uh, a US submarine at, or, or Soviet, uh, a Soviet submarine, a US destroyer could have collided. Uh, you could, there are various points in the Cuban Missile Crisis where things could have escalated out of control. You can ask them to think about those. And when you do, um, the probabilities get out of control. Uh, they, they add up to way more than one. People see too much likelihood in too many scenarios. Uh, and this can happen thinking backward in time, uh, as in the Cuban Missile Crisis situation. But it can also happen thinking forward in time, when you uh, think about multiple futures and scenarios. And you, um, so, um, I guess what I'm trying to emphasize here is that um, there are these intimate connections between how we think about the past and how we think about the future. Uh, they are derived from common mental models, essentially of propensities, causal propensities. Um, and the, the, the cognitive biases uh, that tend to contaminate thinking about possible pasts um, also infiltrate our thinking about the future. So um, another um, thing that seems to come out of it, I think I, I, I'm still ruminating over what Dean was saying earlier about the Air France flight. There's something about challenging assumptions that seems important in looking at counterfactuals. Um, and so when I was thinking of what black swan event I would put, uh, I thought, well, in 2030, we'll discover that the Chinese have had working quantum computers for the past 20 years. <laughs> and, and so, and, and, but that's actually potentially a counterfactual, that there's an implicit prediction that the Chinese have working quantum computers that we will probably find out is not true. Uh, but the counterfactual is also something somehow related to the black, that black swan prediction. There, there's something about challenging assumptions in, in, in all of this that seems, at least in the process, the, it seems at least to touch the social process of forecasting. Right. And well, well counterfactuals can, well, the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis counterfactual could conceivably have culminated in World War III, so it could have been a radically, could have gated this into a radically different world. There are other kinds of counterfactuals that, that alter other landscape features of our world that are, that are disturbing, like imagining that you know, the United States doesn't successfully secede from Britain. Or, um, 
you know, the other big counterfactual thought experiment, a series of counterfactual thought experiments that we actually ran on historians had to do with the, um, the rise of the West. At what point in, in history did it become inevitable that a relatively small number of Europeans would achieve geopolitical dominance? Um, and there again, you have lots of animated debates, uh, including, including E.H. Carr's line about sore losers. Uh, I mean, there, there are... In, in, um, a very popular counterfactual in China right now is what the Admiral Zheng He and uh, the, the fleet that the, 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 the um, which dynasty was it? In the, was it the 14th century or the 15th century? The one that went to Africa. I'm sorry? The, the fleet that went to Africa. Yeah, yes, the fleet that went to Africa. Yeah. Right. Star, star off. Right, but, but, but they dismantled the entire fleet and they decided they didn't want, but, but it was a really formidable fleet and, and, they, and they, had, they, had, they had very considerable power projection capabilities. So they, uh, so certainly much more formidable than the Spanish and Portuguese ships that were so shortly thereafter starting to sail through the Pacific. Um, so again, the, these counterfactual, you can get people to think about ways in which China could have emerged or ways in which Islam in the 8th century or the 15th century um, could, have, could, could, have been, could have made more successful intrusions into Europe. These are counterfactuals that have a lot of cultural resonance uh, in other parts of the world. Um, now, E.H. Carr was dismissive, right? He called it the sore, sore, sore loser history. Um, but they, 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 are, they are popular, and they're tenacious. And the caliphate. I, pardon me? The, ca the story of the caliphate. Yes, yes. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, each of the things that you're talking about end up asking people to predict correctly whether we could imagine going back in time. Some specific event that in itself is so specific, you're never going to get the advantage of doing it multiple times, which is inconvenient when you're trying to use probability. <laughs> uh, but back to the airplane one, where even those accents where I was sitting there trying to think, are there certain kinds of events that have the same human versus other cities that happen at a large enough scale and maybe happen in different environments different enough to do multiple separate experiments but close enough that you can take out like for instance car accidents there's 42,000 people get killed every year pretty reliably plus or minus a thousand last 15 years million but it's well known you should check the number I think it's three-eighths it's either a third or three-eighths of all fatal car accidents in the United States at least one of the drivers was drunk they wonder, how can it be that we allow people to drink and drive? That's, an, that's, that's way worse than weather is mostly involved. It's like insane. Now, people have to drive, people can drink, but on what basis have we decided it's your privilege to drink and kill somebody? I, I don't know. And relatively recently, when they decided that people that text are even more likely to have accidents, there's been such a quick response that in most states now, if they catch you doing this, it's, you're in big trouble. Yeah. But they won't tell you, like they do to pilots, if you have anything to drink, you cannot fly. It's not up to you to decide. If you, if you have anything to drink, you can't drive for eight hours. That's the law. I don't know how many people violate the law, but that's the law. The irony is, we all go to restaurants at night when we're tired and have a glass of wine or two and then get out in that rainy night 
And I told you, if you could get your experiment by saying, find a place where that's not legal, or find a place where they don't drink at all, it's a dry set or a different, you ought to be able to construct models that were as if you could do your multiple models by finding different populations that meet the criteria of different hypotheses than run your experiments in those different places. I, no, I agree. You're getting closer to the uh, ideal laboratory experiment there. I guess what I'm trying to do is give you a large enough set right. of criteria that you can effectively get on the laws of large numbers to help you figure out whether your probabilities work or not. Yeah, and, but most policy debates unfold in a world where the law of large numbers does not give us a lot of leverage. But there are some... But there are some. There, there are, are some and there's some, you know, I'm trying to think of cases which aren't like accidents, where there's an individual who may affect other individuals, obviously, but where there's actually social or political, so it's closer to some of your international effects. And one of the things I think of that has large numbers is strikes. So there have been lots of strikes or protests in lots of places, lots of different contexts, lots of them. And may not be as large numbers as accidents, I don't, I'm not sure, but there are those kinds of social phenomena which should be susceptible to some kind of predictive capacity and which you could, even if you can't actually create a control, though you might be able to, I mean a real control, you probably have some contextual variables that come pretty close to control. Okay, so let's take a short break. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose a couple of questions to you, and, and we, can, we can revisit them tomorrow morning. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community um, is, does, does not believe it's appropriate to hold analysts accountable for the accuracy of their forecasts. It believes it's appropriate to hold analysts accountable for the processes by which they reach their conclusions. Uh, it's not appropriate to judge them on the, on the basis of the accuracy of their conclusions when they're conclusions about the future. Um, the operation was a complete success, but the patient died. Yes, you, you, could, you, you, you could say that the analysts engaged in best analytical practices. Uh, they got it wrong, but they did everything right. Because this is a stochastic environment, and people doing everything right, sometimes they're going to get it wrong. We think it's only fair to hold people responsible for things that are under their control. That's the process, and it, whereas the outcome, okay. Um, let me give you a couple of other examples. Um, public school teachers. Is it appropriate to hold them accountable for student test performance, which is an outcome, or is it appropriate to hold them accountable for how they teach? Or another example, uh, corporate uh, personnel managers, people who do hiring, firing. Um, is it appropriate to hold them accountable for getting the numbers right on women and minorities, outcome, or appropriate to hold them accountable for the process by which they make hiring and firing decisions. In, so in, in each of these cases, you've got a distinction between process and outcome. That I think ties into this, some of this um, uh, earlier discussion about uh, explanation and prediction and the degree to which they are or are not tightly coupled. Um, if you believe that explanation and prediction were totally tightly coupled, would it make much of a difference to analysts whether or not they were being held accountable for process and outcome, process or outcome? Um, it's late afternoon, so you don't have to answer that question. But uh, it, 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 it's, it's, um, 
it does. It is partly a matter of trust. Uh, so conservatives don't trust public school, school teachers and their unions very much. So they like accountability for test performance. Uh, liberals are more inclined to defend them, and they they, they don't don't say there shouldn't be some accountability, but they are more inclined to go for process. Liberals don't trust corporate personnel managers to be non-sexist, non-racist, so they often prefer accountability for demographic outcomes. Uh, whereas conservatives are more inclined to say you should judge them by process, you shouldn't try to force an outcome. Um, in the, with intelligence analysts, it's somewhat murky uh, whether people break in favor of process or outcome. And of course, it's not a dichotomy. You also have hybrids. You have process and outcome hybrids. And many companies um, uh, actually do embrace uh, hybrids of various sorts. But if you want, if you're more, are you interested more in super forecasters or are you interested more in super explainers? If you're interested in super explainers, what should you be? In, you, should, you should presumably be incentivizing process. Would that be right, Danny? The intelligence community is pretty tiny because the sort of a machine that's constructed to produce answers, the intelligence analysts are sort of cogs in that machine. So they don't have much choice of what information they get to analyze. So their, their job is to sort of adjust the information that they're giving to the analyst and somehow refine that product to speed up to the next level where it becomes the input to the next so they don't really, so I think it's sort of fair in the case of the way that it's constructed. All you can ask is that they sort of did what they were supposed to do with the information that they got. So you judge them by the analytical procedures, not by the actors. They construct the system that way. Yeah. So, so, so what happens is policymakers sort of say, we well, want to do these things. Somebody analyzes this big processing machine, which vacuums up information, pushes it through the system, and produces reports up there. It's kind of a crazy way to do it if what you're trying to do is inform yeah. decision making. That is the way that it works. Yeah. In the fourth year of the IARPA tournament, we ran an experiment in which we manipulated whether the forecasters were accountable for their judgment process, not accuracy, for accuracy the way it normally is in the tournament, or for a combination of the two. Um, and I was quite interested in how the intelligence community reacts to that. Um, their view is that explanation is really, really important to what they do. And they would even be willing to give up a few units of accuracy in order to get better explanations. Um, and there does seem to be a trade-off between the two. When you incentivize people uh, just to focus on process, I, what, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care if your predictions about Germany or Greece or China are right. I want to, I'm going to judge you on the basis of the quality of the explanations you offer for your forecasts. And we'll, we can come back later to what exactly that means. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to define. But we're going to judge you on the basis of that. Um, the net effect is your explanations do get better on various metrics, but your accuracy goes down. And the net effect of being just purely outcome accountable is your explanations are not as good, but your outcome accuracy is better. And the net effect of hybrid is you're in between. You're, 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 you're not as good as the process people on process, you're not as good as the, uh, accur on accuracy as the outcome people, you're, you're, you're in between the two. Um, so there does seem to be 
this work would suggest there is some sort of trade-off here. Um, now, should there be a trade-off? I mean, you would think if, if in an ideal world, in an ideal uh, situation, surely good explanations and good forecasts incentivizing them should, should be mutually reinforcing, not somehow distracting. But for reasons that I do not fully understand, the world doesn't seem to work that way here. So part of it is because of the fear of the intelligence agency actually being overly responsive to the desires of the customer. It's a funny, it's a funny system. You're deliberately not giving the feedback of customer satisfaction. But these aren't, we're not talking about real analysts, we're talking about our subjects, research subjects, and forecasting terms. So they're not, they're not analysts now. I, I mean, I, they, I was talking about how they hold analysts accountable, and we wanted to do an experiment that would mimic how they hold analysts accountable, which is for process. And if you mimic their accountability system in, in, the, in the forecasting tournament, the net effect is to degrade accuracy but improve explanations. And what does it, what does it mean to do, get, generate a better explanation? Well, there are a lot of, this would take us hours, right? But one definition that's pretty clear cut is a better explanation is one that when you hand it to somebody else, it helps them make a better explanation. So it's like an assist in hockey. Um, you help, it, it, there's an information value added. The process people are generating better explanations in that sense. So they, even though it's degrading their own accuracy, they are actually improving the accuracy of other people when their explanations are shared with others. Um, anyway, we were hoping in, in year four to create a special category of forecasters, super explainers, as, as well as super forecasters. Um, and well, Terry has done that. We, we, we do have a group of forecasters who are really good at explaining. Uh, and we have a very small group who are good at both. Um, but it's unusual. Is there like a public, inter Sorry. Is there like a public interface uh, where we could see the what people are forecasting and... There was, uh, and there will be again. <laughs> okay. so there, we could have access to... <coughs> yeah, I don't know why, why not. Um, okay. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. The question is, do you really want to, do you want to optimize the system for accuracy, or do you want to optimize the system for usefulness? Which might... It, it, it's interesting that there, there may be a trade-off there. But you, you have a really good model for the kind of trade-off you're looking for, you probably get data on it by looking at a system that's got unfortunately millions of pieces of data in the U.S. court system. Start out by giving three or four examples of do we want to judge teachers by what the students Process do? Process or outcome, yeah. And they're each, do we want to judge by such a, well, we have things called judges in the, in the courts, and I think a, a way to restate your first hypothesis on trade-offs is was the founding fathers had the great debates about do we want the rule of man or do we want the rule of law? And their theory was they'd seen kings and Harvard, and they said, as bad as law might be, it never gets it right. You can. We'd rather have the rule of law so everybody knows. If you jaywalk, you might get a ticket, but you're not going to get shot, whatever it is. But they knew it was a pretty bad compromise because then they created a jury system. And I think we have some pretty strong incentives in a trade-off by which we have knowingly said, we're going to let a lot of people go free to avoid ever putting an innocent person in jail. So we don't have a symmetric system by which it says, be accurate as your highest authority. We say, beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. 
Maybe so, so just for your experiments, you could say if we change the thresholds yeah. between the rule of law and then you go to tell a story, you said explain it. The, the whole reason we have all these passionate lawyers is yeah. they go out and explain stories right. to try to get around the rule of law. So we're not going to get to the bottom of this this afternoon because my blood sugar level is too low. But here, the constitutional law professor, Barack Obama, Lawrence Tribe, wrote a paper in 1971 in Harvard Law Review called Trial by Mathematics. Fine. Trial by Mathematics, in which he looks at exactly the question you're raising and, 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 and tre treating the legal system as a forecasting system. And he says, uh, it would be, he says it would be a really, really bad idea to keep explicit score. It would be it would delegitimize the system. You you don't want a specific trade-off rule that you know we're going to give up nine innocent, let nine guilty go in order to, well let nine guilty people off in order to avoid convicting one innocent one. You don't want the false positive, false negative trade-offs to be explicitly spelled out. Uh, you want vague verbiage. You want beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, and that's. It's kind, of, it's kind of rhetorical shock and awe. You, you, you want the masses to bow and, and to, to, to accept the legitimacy of the system. You don't want them wondering, hey, why that number? Um, so um, the legal system is not one that incentivizes or is designed to um, uh, accuracy. That, that was my whole point. You yeah. have an existing model to run your thesis. We have a system which has the two. I can optimize for accuracy, or I can have some, according to pure logic, perverse incentive to say, I will put stronger weight on never putting the innocent person away. And then, within the constraints of your rule-based system, the rule of law, we then bring in these people who are the storytellers to explain why and what they did, which might have been beyond the bounds of law, are still appropriate behavior. So the last thing I'll say about this is that when you talk to super forecasters about the Lawrence Tribe article, Trial by Mathematics, they think it's really dumb. <laughs> they, they really dislike it. Um, they think it's retrograde. Well, they are quite fanatical scorekeepers. They, they believe in scorekeeping. I, I don't know what the reaction of the audience is to the Tribe argument the way I've summarized it. And you can Google it up and check it out for yourself. Whether I think that's a fair rendition of it. But if assuming I have ac represented it reasonably accurately, how many of you would say, hmm, tribe has a good point, or tribe is retarding progress in the legal system? A good point would be how many? Bob? And how many would say it's retrograde? <laughs> how many how many have no how many how many have, how many have no idea? <laughs>